Welcome to Calvary Chapel Sebastian Podcast. We hope that you're blessed by this message. All right, so once again, I do want to welcome everybody here tonight and those listening on our podcast channel. Now, a quick recap from last week. Last week, we learned that knowing God's character can change how we see our present situation, right? And that's important, and we're going to definitely see that that's true tonight. So tonight, we're going to continue our study of the Israelites, and now we're going to talk about their journey into the desert. This is huge. This is big. So we're going to pick up, our story picks up on, at Exodus 15. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open Exodus 15, verse 27. So Exodus 15, 27, and the information or the, uh, will be on the slide behind me too. If you don't have your Bible, that's okay. Then what it, this is what it says. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. Now, this verse is rather short. There's not a lot of stuff going on in there, and that's for a reason. The Israelites had been through so much in the past few weeks. They were freed from slavery, which is great, but in doing so, that meant they had to get out of Egypt quickly, meaning they had to carry everything on their backs. Um, and remember, these were not rich people with lots of servants, chariots, wagons, lots of people to help. They simply had to grab what they could and go, and they were slaves, so they didn't have a lot to begin with. Then once they headed into the desert in search of their freedom, we know that the Pharaoh changed his mind, didn't he? And he started to chase them, to either capture, slaughter, and whatever. He wasn't going to let them go. And that's where we get the story of God parting the Red Sea, right? So they could pass over on dry land. Then when the, when the Pharaoh and his army, they go in after them into the Red Sea, and that's where the water collapses on all sides and drowns the Egyptian army. Then the Israelites, they head a little further into the desert, and within three days... I'm going to run, this is just leading up to it. Within three days, they'd run out of water. Then God turned some bad, undrinkable water into good water at a place called Mara. Then the Israelites, they travel a bit further, further, and they arrive at the place that we just talked about, Elam, where they find 12 springs, 70 palm trees. Now, that doesn't mean a whole lot here because we got palm trees everywhere, right? Who doesn't enjoy picking up palm fronds, right? <laughs> Total joy. And you can't run them over with your lawnmower. I found that out. It doesn't work well. But they're in the desert. So what this is painting is this is a really beautiful picture. And it tells us they camped near the water. They camped. So God is giving them what they need. This is a time to refresh, to rest, to wrap their heads around what is going on. Because no doubt the people believed in God, but let's be honest, they're going through a great trial. Their faith was weak. This is going to be hard. And throughout their time in the desert, we're going to see as we go forward that they go through periods of faith and periods where they totally lose it, totally revert back. Even there's a period where they'd want to go back and be slaves, right? So this is a short period of rest at an oasis with natural springs. God is providing this time for them. They've been through a lot. He's there for them. So now our story continues into chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. 16 verses 1 to 2. It says, The whole Israelite community set out from Elam. So they're leaving that place and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they came out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Now, this marks about one month since they had been freed from Egypt, freed from slavery. One month, 30 days. That's not a long time. And now they're leaving this oasis, this nice, beautiful oasis with lots of water, comfort. Now God's calling them into the desert. Anyone ever marched around in the desert? 
hot, not a lot of water, not a lot of shade, right? But he's calling them out there. And he's eventually going to give them the Ten Commandments. They don't know that yet, but that's coming. And verse 2 tells us something important. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Now, this is why I said this part is important. It's our first big teach, uh, point of the, of the night. Okay, first big point. Miracles do not lead to healthy, long-lasting faith. Okay, I want you to remember that. Remember, these people, they had been slaves in Egypt. They witnessed a whole slew of plagues, right, that God sent against the Egyptians and the Pharaoh. They witnessed the angel of death that passed over them. They saw the waters parted in the Red Sea. Then they saw them crash again and drown the entire army. They witnessed some truly great and amazing stuff that our eyes will never see. And he freed them from slavery. And yet, they're a few days out from the oasis. Their supplies are starting to run out. No food, no water. And now all the greatness of God is doing what? It's evaporating, just like the water, right? Sure, God's real, but what about us? So those same miracles that they saw, that they experienced, did not give them long-lasting faith. Faith involves trust, real trust. And throughout the Bible, we're going to see the same thing. People asking for a sign, miracles, whatever, but not everybody who saw that stuff even came to believe. When Jesus was on this earth, this is important, people regularly demanded signs for him, from him. Prove to us. Show us you're the one. Show it. Let me see it. Do the card trick. You know, find the ten of clubs, right? That real cool one. They wanted to know he's the Messiah. They're like, sure, we're going to believe, just show us. But he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. You want to know why? Miracles don't bring faith. And this is how Jesus actually answered those people. It's in Matthew 12, 39. It's a be above me. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign. But none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now what he means by that is people who continually ask for a sign, they're not actually after faith. They're, they're not looking to know Jesus and understand who, he's, who he is and believe in him, why he came. They're looking for the celebrity, the coolness that goes with the miracles. Think of like fireworks displays. Everyone goes, yeah, woo, awesome. That's basically what it is. That's not faith. That's not trust. And Jesus further states the only sign that's going to be given is the sign of Jonah. He's talking about his death and his resurrection. He dies, three days later, he comes back. So just like people who only seek miracles, they don't really have faith, the Israelites in our story saw lots of miracles. And what are they doing? They're struggling in their faith. So as the story continues into verse three, when I read this, I'm gonna be a little sarcastic, but keep in mind, this is actually what they said and how they meant it. Verse three, the Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. All, but if you, you brought us out in the desert to starve this entire assembly. Now look at those words. That, I know, that's a huge exaggeration, but that is exactly what they said. They're saying, listen, when we were slaves, we had so much to eat. There, was just every, there were just pots of food everywhere. We had, we, we had so much food. But you, Moses, you, you brought us out here to die. That is a heavy-duty accusation. And of course, that's simply not true. In Egypt, they were slaves. Slaves are not treated well, right? They were fed just enough to keep them alive and working. That is it. God had done a whole ton of amazing miracles for them on their behalf that they benefited from. 
to show them. He brought them out. He saved them by his mighty hand. But as soon as the food and water ran out, if things ran low, what happened? They forgot everything. Everything. Every miracle that God did weeks ago, ancient history. Can barely remember them. Too far back to remember. The angel of death, he's probably a nice guy. It was nothing. Parting of the Red Sea, it was more like a creek. It wasn't that big anyway. Right? They, they, they flushed all the knowledge of this. It's gone. And they had benefited from it. So again, the miracles they witnessed, again, which they completely benefited from, did not bring them faith. Remember, they had been slaves for around 400 years. That's a long time. 400 years. Think of the United States. We have not existed as a nation for 400 years. Think about our identity as a nation. America. Woo, America. Right? Think of all the things that it means to be American. That's our identity. That came from our, us being developed, you know, our nation. They were slaves for longer. What was their identity? Slavery. That's all they knew. That's it. And now God frees them. Frees them. Can you imagine what that would have been like as a nation to try to wrap your head around? And now they're only a couple weeks out from truly being freed, and they forget everything God did for them. That's huge. So why is this happening? What's going on? Because I want to pause here and we want to look at this from a different angle because it's very easy to go, oh, those Israelites, I would have never done that. Right? Very easy. Let's consider ourselves and we're going to see that we're not that different. For example, when I ask this, remember you're in church. Who here is always quick to accept responsibility for the stuff you do wrong? You're in church. Right? Yeah. Who here doesn't act selfish sometimes? Yeah, there we go. We all do that, even though we know better. Now, let's go a little further. We live in the richest country in the world, right? Think of all the amenities we have. We have air conditioning, we have water. It's just amazing, right? None of us truly experience, none of us really know what it's like to be truly malnourished, dehydrated, not the way they do in Haiti, Somalia, things like that, right? That is completely different. So having faith, keeping faith, can seem easy at times here because we are so blessed. We are so blessed. But let's put our, our, ourselves in the situation of the Israelites. What if we, not just as a church, but as the, a, the town of Sebastian, go three full days, no food and water? Three full days, nothing. Every man, woman, and child. How civil would we still be? How many people who claim to have faith on day three, three and a half, are going to be like, it's totally, no. What's people going to do? Society's going to break down. All the laws and regulations, gone. I once read, no matter how advanced society becomes, you take away their food and water in three days, they're back to caveman rules. The one with the biggest stick makes the rules. People go into survival mode. I've also heard people say this. I know someone that said this. I've also heard it online. I don't have to stock up on food and water. You know why? I got guns. I'll take what I want. Not everybody who stocks up gives guns. Now, we can say, oh, that's terrible. What if, everyone here got kids, grandkids? What if your own kids, your own grandkids were truly without food and water for three days? and you truly believe in your heart they are at risk of dying from starvation, dehydration, are you telling me you wouldn't bend some rules to take care of them? Yes. You're human. You are very human. 
We are not that much different. As much as we like to claim that we have strong faith that's never going to break, human history tells a different story. Look at the Israelites. The only life they had known for 400 years was slavery. They're less than 30 days out, and they're already saying they want to go back. How does that happen? Now let's continue with our story. As the story continues, we're going to see again, there are periods where they lose faith, they have doubts, but then interestingly, this is why the stories in the Bible, we get to see God's response. We get to see how he reacts in their weakness, right? Now this is interesting because it's there, in this place, their weakness, God's strength, that we're going to see the beauty of this story. We're going to see why it's even written down. We get to see God's bigger picture. So this brings us to the question, because this is what I get as a pastor a lot of times. Why would God let this happen? Why would God let this, why is this even possible, right? Why, how does it happen that people who believe get in situations where food and water is scarce? Why does he do this? Well, God is in the business of building people up. And that means he's going to change them from being a sinful person, self-centered, rule-breaker, to a person who trusts in him when it doesn't always make sense to other people. You see, God's in the beginning stages with the Israelites of creating a nation that trusts in him above all else. God needs them to believe and have faith in him so he can do all the things he's going to do that we will one day benefit from. So it's not just about them. It's about the world. He has a plan for these people. And he's not going to give them everything they think they need the second they think they need it. There's no growth in that. There's no trust. So what he's going to do is provide for them, but insert some rules. Now, rules that may seem arbitrary to us, like to our human mind, but to someone with a spiritual mind, they're going to understand that it's going to develop faith and trust. It's going to develop their reliance on him. And this is really important because what, is God, what God is going to give to the world through them? The law, the Ten Commandments, our knowledge of sin, and ultimately Jesus Christ, our Messiah. So our next verse, verse 4, tells us, Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way I will test them and see whether they follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in. And it is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. Now, there's two important things to notice in this verse. Number one, God can and does act in ways we are never going to be able to guess. Things that we never met, things that we don't think are possible. Like, that's just how we're wired. Remember, was it in the 90s when people used to say, think outside the box. Think outside the box. Right? That statement recognizes that we humans tend to consider certain things normal based on what we've already seen. But to do that, if you do that, that's all you do. You never innovate. You never really think of new ways to do things. The same is true with God. Miracles blow our mind because why? That's impossible. I have, like, when we watch a magic show, my wife doesn't like to watch it with me. You know why? Guess what I do? Oh, that's how he did that. That's how he did that. Wait, re- rewind, rewind, rewind. That, yes, I do that. I'm totally guilty of that. But when we see miracles, we're like, what? That's a... We have no idea. To us, it makes no sense. To God, totally logical. He can and does all kinds of things that we are never going to understand. So God can do anything. But in that moment, when our faith is tested, it's easy to forget that. 
just like the Israelites are doing. Now, the second important thing God is doing in verses 4 and 5, you'll notice, is he's giving them a test. He's telling them for the first five days of the week, the Israelites are to go out and gather just enough for that day. So what that means is every day, Monday, go out and get enough for Monday. Next day, go out and get enough for Tuesday. Next day, go out and get enough for Wednesday. That is it. Don't get greedy. Don't get, get too much and try to keep it for the next day. That alone is a test of trust. Why? They're in a desert. There's not abundance of food. There are certain parts of the United States, it's not that hard to go out camping if you have a, you know, a, a rifle and a, and, and, a, and a fishing pole. You can actually totally survive. There's lots of stuff. In the desert, there's not. That's why we call it a desert. It's deserted. There's nothing. There's not tons of wild game. There's no wild plants to eat. So for God to say, just take what you need for today and not an ounce more, tomorrow will worry about itself, will worry about itself, takes faith. Faith. Why would people get nervous about doing that? They're in the desert. But that's not all. It's about to get weirder. In addition to only gathering what they need on each day for five days, are you with me? On the sixth day, they need to they gather twice as much. Twice as much. Why would you ask? On the seventh day, they're not to go get anything. He wants them to rest. And I want to stop, out, stop and point out how, in a human terms, mind-bogglingly crazy this is. Because up to this point in human history, it's another 3,000 years before we invent electricity, grocery stores, you name it, right? All that stuff. Refrigeration, food preservation. Unless you're wealthy with lots of land and people doing your work for you, you have to work every day to get food, prepare it, and have it ready. Because you can't store it overnight. It's, you, it's very difficult to do. Taking one day off a week every day to do nothing, especially in the desert, is not smart. It's not, right? Not in human terms, if we're on our own. But the Israelites are not on their own. God is in the beginning process of providing for them, but also training them up to trust him more and more and more. Faith does not show its potential, its beauty, on days when you have everything. Like, you know, those days where you're walking through Sam's, your cart's full, plus you got pizza, and then you got a slushie right here. Am I the only one that does that? I mean, you're, just, you're loaded up, and you're going to your car with your air conditioning, and you've you're, you got nothing to worry about. Faith matters when you don't have anything, and you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. That's, what, that's what's important. So this is bring, brings us to our second big point of the night. Faith matters in uncertainty. It just does. And it's not that far off in some ways like wedding vows. And Pastor Dave can tell you this. Pastor Craig, when you've done premarital counseling, I read through the vows, and I always tell them it's very easy to go, yes, when we're richer, we're young and good-looking, <laughs> right? It's the poor, and in, when you're not healthy, when life is tough, you're sick of each other, because you're angry, and it's been, you know, that's when vows matter. That's when it's tough. And in this case, in our story, God is about to give the Israelites a master class on trust in uncertain times. So this is the big picture that we're beginning to see unfold. This is about faith and trust. So the story continues and tells us that Moses, Moses and Aaron, then they say to the people, you will now see the glory of the Lord. You will now know it's the Lord who provides for you. Now you're going to know. 
Because what's going to happen is the Lord is going to give you meat in the evening and bread in the morning. Now, again, I'm gonna, this is going to sound like I'm beating a dead horse, but remember, they were just freed from slavery. The Egyptians let them go free because all the plagues, right? All the, t- the ten plagues, the locusts, the frogs, the, all that stuff, right? They saw this and it didn't affect them, meaning they were spared. But the Israelites saw this and they still needed to be shown other miracles. They were still, God was still providing for them. But each of those miracles did not bring lasting faith, at least not the way we think it does. They need to be built up over time. Now we know God is about to do something crazy. He's going to do miracles of manna and quail, right? And we're going to get into. But again, before he does, the people start to complain. Moses and Aaron, they even tell the people, who are we? Why? Are Please stop. You're not grumbling against us. You're grumbling against the Lord. You don't understand. But God is always the picture of grace. This is amazing. Even though he did all those miracles, and even though they're, 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 they're continuing to grumble and complain, he's not phased. He's patient. This is what he tells them in verse 8. Moses said to them, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning. Why? Because he's heard your grumbling against him. So even though the people are in fact complaining God's heard it, God does not hold it against them. He doesn't even say they have to stop complaining first. He simply provides. He's in the business of building up his people. Now notice that doesn't always involve giving them or us what we think we need the moment we need it. He's going to allow situations to let them stretch, to learn, and he's going to do the same for us. But the purpose is always to bring us closer, to trust him more. Now I want to jump ahead a little bit to verses 13 and 14, and let's see what God does. Verse 13 and 14. That evening, quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. So what we see happening is God taking care of his people in a big way. I mean, it sounds weird, but there were quail everywhere. Anyone ever go quail hunting? You don't grab them by the hand, do you? You got to shoot them with a shotgun. These people didn't have shotguns. There was quail everywhere that they could actually reach out and grab what they needed. I mean, the the quail were everywhere. They blanketed the place. And the people were complaining. God didn't give them the cold shoulder. He he flooded them with food, and that was just in the evening. In the morning when they woke up, it says there were thin flakes on the desert floor. And then they would gather as much of that as they needed. It was a substance that they eventually made into something like bread. The color of it was white like a pearl. So think of it like a nice pearl necklace. And when it dried, they said that it was small like a coriander seed, almost like the size of uh, sesame seed. So it was small. And they, when they prepared it, when they made it, they, they, they said it tasted like a really, really good pastry made with oil. It was like a cannoli, right? <laughs> a really good cannoli. In the desert, courtesy of the good Lord above. What could be worse? That's pretty good. Now, we've talked about God testing them and building them up, and that's exactly what he's doing. In the fact, and this is good, in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 8, there's a verse that tells us exactly what's going on. Deuteronomy 8, 3. So he humbled you. He allowed you to hunger. And he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor your fathers knew, that he might make you know This is the key, that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So the beauty of this verse is that it gets really, really specific about 
God and what he's doing with him. He does it to us too. This is what it is. He humbled them and he's going to humble us if he hasn't already done that. He allowed them to hunger. Then he fed them generously. Then he taught them that we do not live on bread alone. We do not focus on money, objects. We focus on the very word that comes from his mouth. And that's really, really cool because that's also the verse that Jesus quotes to the devil. After 40 days in the wilderness, the devil's tempting him. You're hungry, man. I know you're hungry. Turn these stones into bread. Oh, come on. Who's going to know? Right? But notice Jesus didn't do that. Jesus said no. Man lives only by the word of God which comes from his mouth. And this is a lesson. So that God's going to sometimes put us in places of need to teach us, to stretch us, to build us up, to make us more reliant on him. He's done it to me. Absolutely. And I didn't always like it. But I trusted him. And that was always the right thing. Now, verse 15 tells us, this is, this is the, where things get funny in my book, tells us the Israelites, when they saw the manna, they began to gather up and they asked each other, well, what is this? That's a good question, right? What is this? And they said that because they didn't know. They had no explanation for it. They didn't know what it was. So ironically, do you know what the word manna means? What is it? We, 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 you know, we tend, to th- <laughs> we tend to think that manna means something important, huge, like, this is how my mind worked. It's spirit of sanctum, and a, ding, a big bell and smoke, and then there's a man that comes down, and people are like, oh, it means something deep and heavy. It means, what do you call it? <laughs> right? Like, anybody a Lord of the Rings fan? Love Lord of the Rings. You know, you know all the cool names they had for the swords? I wrote them down. Orcrist, Glamdring, Anduril, forged from the shards of Narsil. Right? Heavy-duty stuff. They called manna... Uh, Whatchamacallit. <laughs> Next one. Next slide. <laughs> when we don't know what to call it, it's a, you know, the thingy, the, thing, the whatchamacallit. That's what manna was. Now, this is what's beautiful, because I know I joke about that. That's how you know the story's true. If you're going to write a story, a, a fake religion, and insert some cool, you're going to make everything you do seem awesome, and we're so smart, we have Andrew and we're going to go kill dragons. You're not going to say, whatchamacallit. That's the white stuff we picked off the ground. But that's what they called it. They didn't know what else to do. And that's the word. So God, God's now providing them manna, but also instructions on how to gather it and how to store it. And, I remember, and remember, as I read these instructions, and you can read them too in verses 16 uh, to 19, God's not giving them random, no reason rules. He's teaching them to trust in him, and to follow his instructions clearly. If they do, things are going to go well. If not, they're going to have a hard time. This is what he tells them, verse uh, 16 to 19. And I'm just going to read it. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer, which is about what one person needs for a day, an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some gathered little. And when they measured it by the omer, The one that gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, what? No one is to keep any of it until morning. Is anybody vague on what that means? 
right? Everybody like, well, I don't. The basic command here is only to gather what you need for the day. Don't keep anything overnight, all right? He says it quite bluntly. But remember, they're in the desert. They've not experienced this before. They're not that. They just called it whatchamacallit. That's the best they can come up with, right? And he says, no, just worry about today, okay? Tomorrow has its own troubles. But knowing this, the, the Israelites are just as human as us. What do you think happened? Verse 20, however, some of them what? Paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it till morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. God had a way of ensuring they're going to follow his instructions whether they like it or not. That's what's going to happen. Whatever you try to keep overnight, not only is it going to rot and get stinky, it's going to be full of maggots. So the reluctant, the disobedient people had to fall in line. They had to learn, but they had to learn a lesson first. But now here, this is where God really begins to weave in his blessings, his provision, with just trusting in him. Notice for the first five days, the Israelites only gather, whatchamacallit, right? Enough for each day. And they do that for five days, right? That's it. Whatever they kept overnight on the first five days would rot and be no good. Now, God is going to introduce the concept of the Sabbath. And for one day each week, he's going to upend everything they just learned for the first five days. Verses 22 to 26 tell us for five days, gather enough for one day and don't try to keep everything overnight, right? On the sixth day, go out and gather twice as much as you've done the other days. I know what I said. Gather twice as much. Then eat the normal amount on day six. Keep the extra over for day seven. It's not going to rot. There's going to be no maggots and there will be no manna on day seven. Does that make sense where we're going here? Don't keep anything over. Not only will it be safe, but you keep over, it's, there's going to be no manna. So even if you forget, guess what? You're not eating the next day. Now, to be honest, those instructions are fairly clear, right? Has everybody kind of got that? If we're the people, every day for five days, just give what you need, that's it. Day six, get twice as much, eat what you normally do, leave it over, it'll be fine, right? Not a lot of wriggle room. What do you think happens? I think the whole Israelite obeys completely, even if it seems strange, which let's be honest, it does. Well, that's not what actually what happens. No matter what God's instructions are, a few people disregard what he says. And it says on the seventh day, they were surprised when they went out and didn't find anything. <laughs> what? I can't believe there's not absolutely free bread that God, these cannoli things that God keeps bread. There's, it, it's not here. Now let's take a look at God's response to their disobedience. As we look at his words, understand the purpose behind all this. Because God's not telling them to do random things. It seems like that at first, but it's not. These are very specific instructions. Through obedience, there's going to be a blessing. Verses 28 to 30. The Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. And that is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the Sabbath. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. God's saying, look, you're in the desert. I put you there. There's no food. I am your God. I've given you the Sabbath. This is a gift. Trust me. The gift means that God so much, he's going to build into your life while you're refugees in the desert that one day a week you're going to be able to rest. 
one day each week. It doesn't matter where you are in the world, I'm going to take care of you. When food is scarce, I got you. I'm going to bless you so much that on one day a week, you don't have to do anything. Just stop. Spend your day with me, with your family. And this is the Sabbath day has always impressed me because there's nothing like it. He's building a, basically a vacation day into each, into each week. He wants them to take the day off to unplug, not worry about the world. Spend the day with your family, with me. Build your relationship. And when you really start to take a step back and consider the full concept of the Sabbath, it is so good in many, many ways. And so this is what we're seeing here, that God is introducing the idea of the Sabbath. It's a blessing, it's a gift, because God is saying, don't work. I got you. You're my people. For one day, pull back from the world. And that involves trust. Let's be honest. If we were in the desert, that would be a hard thing to do. But he says, you're okay. You're in one of the most inhospitable places on earth. Don't worry. I got you. You're my people. Just believe me. The next part of the verse tells us this in verse 35. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years. Until they came to the land that was settled, they ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. So the whole time in the desert... Remember, there's more ups and downs. We're going to get to that over the next few weeks. There's days when they were good. There's days when they weren't. God sends them manna six days a week. On the days Israel does a good job, the manna is there. On the days they don't do a good job, the manna is there. It's God always being present, a constant reminder that he's there for his people. Even when they sin, even when they pull away, even when they doubt, he's there. So as I, as I begin to finish, I'm going to, I want to highlight what God did for the Israelites. I want to sum it up because it's really important because he does the same thing to us. The first thing he did for the Israelites was humble them. He humbled them. I've been humbled, and I didn't always like it, but I was a better Christian. I had better faith. I had a better relationship with God. I could hear him better when I was humble. He needed, he needed them to understand he was their God and he would provide for them, that they can't do anything without him. And the only way for them to truly flourish and reach their potential is to humble him, themselves so they can hear him. The next thing he did was allow them to hunger. He didn't give them everything they needed the moment they needed it. All right, the stuff they need, is it, can anyone relate to, relate to that? Yeah. There's, we always say that you know, when you ask God for something, there's three answers. Yes, no, wait. And I gotta be honest, wait is harder than a no. More people doubt God on the wait than they do the no. You would think the no would be like, well, he said no. No, the wait is harder. But the reason he does that is he wants us to trust. If he gave us everything we wanted the moment we wanted it, that's like a rich uncle. You just go for money every time, right? It's a transactional relationship. Sure, I love you, Uncle Joe. Give me $100, right? I need this, I need this, I need this, I need this. The only time you end up going to him is when you need something. Other than that, you're on your own. God wanted a real relationship with them, so he needed them to trust him and look to him for their needs. And once humbled and hungry, God blessed them. Blessed them immeasurably. Back then, and even now, there was no other religion that says, hey, I don't care where you are in the world, one day a week, stop. That's crazy when you think about it. I mean, now we got 
granola bars that last, what, six months. It's no problem. You can do this. You ever see those little straws? You can go into dirty water and you can suck it up and it comes clean now, right? They had none of that. He's saying, just stop. That would be hard, but that's what he wanted. And he fed them and cared for them. And he gave them a day of rest, a day of joy to build into their lives, one day a week to spend with him and their family. And the last thing he did was he taught them that man cannot live on bread alone, which means money doesn't really matter. All the belongings we have, God is what matters, his word. We live, we thrive, we flourish on his word. We do. Jesus himself said so. He taught us to live that way. So tonight's message, the one I prayed that you take from this teaching, is that God loves you. He's, he's here for you. He's in the build, business of building you up. That is not always going to be the way that you think you need to be built up. It's throughout the Bible. It's completely true. The disciples went through that. Boy, if you really read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're going to see some stuff like, woo. But he built them up, and he's going to build you up because he has a purpose for you. That means he may test you. He may let you hunger. But the purpose is always to bring you closer to him. To trust him more and that you will flourish in this life. So let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father, tonight we learned we learned the need to be humbled. The need to hunger. And that we need to trust in you. Help us to know that when life does not go our way, when when things don't seem to match up with our plans, that perhaps you're using the situation to reach us, to teach us. Help us to be patient. Help us to rely on you. Let us never forget about you and all that you've done for us. Help us to read and cherish your word. Let Let it nourish our souls and bring us closer to you. And Father, as we continue to grow in our faith, may we be used by you to help spread the good news. Because that's what this is about. May our lives, our deeds, our church, may it glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Calvary Chapel Sebastian podcast channel. If this message impacted your life, we encourage you to share it with a friend. We're located at 1251 Sebastian Boulevard, just northeast of Intersection 90th Avenue and State Road 512 in Sebastian, Florida. Our service times are Saturday evening at 6 p.m., Sunday morning at 1045 a.m., and Wednesdays at 630 p.m.